WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're listening to, to, you're listening to, to Radio Lab. I just thought I'd see if I can get the sound of baby sleeping. This is Radio Lab. Today's program is about sleep. I don't have to tell you how good sleep is. You do it yourself. Every night. Or you try. And how wonderful when it actually works. When you can close your eyes and forget the day and just drift off into oblivion. Like a little baby. But let's suppose that you are a little baby, this little baby, and you grow up to become a scientist. Like one of the scientists we'll hear from in this program. And you decide to ask what should be the dumbest question ever. Why do we sleep? And not just us. Well, pretty much everything sleeps. As far as we know, all mammals do it. All birds. Bees, locusts, cockroaches, crayfish, reptiles, insects, scorpions. Everything that's been studied has something that looks like sleep. It's a mystery. Most things we sort of know what they are for and also how they work. But sleep is really in your face. I mean, everybody does it. You do it from the cradle to the grave. You can't help doing it because if you try to stay awake, you know, at some point it's irrepressible. And we don't know why. That's a shameful state of affairs. How can you be a scientist in the 21st century and not know the answer to that? There you go. Okay. That's a pretty good way to begin, no? With shame? Yeah, yeah. Today on Radio Lab, we're going to try to correct this shameful state of affairs when it comes to the subject of sleep. We'll talk with people who can help us understand what it's for. Why we do it. And what happens when we don't. I'm Robert Krulwich. I'm Jad Abumran. Stay with us. For centuries, people thought that sleep was kind of the opposite of being awake. It's reasonable, one would think. Sure, because, you know, during the day, you're doing all these things, you're having all these thoughts and feelings. At night, you just lie there, very, very still. In fact, like sometimes a bomb could go off and you wouldn't wake up. I I can hardly wake up even in a fire. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) No, I'm a really heavy sleeper. I am a very, very heavy sleeper. The point is, if all you've got are your eyes to go on, sleep can seem like... Being well, like, like being off. off. Yeah, like offness. Right, or worse. Well, uh, both Shakespeare and Cervantes referred to sleep as death. That's Dr. Carlos Schenk. He wrote a great book about sleep called Paradox Lost. We go to we go to bed every night. We die every night, and then we wake up in the morning and we're alive again. And that was the prevailing theory for centuries. For Dr. Schenk, the awakening to just how wrong Shakespeare and Cervantes were about sleep came one day while he was sitting in a class for med school. My first year at medical school. This was back in 1972. We had an emeritus professor who actually was a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Uh, Eccles, John, Sir John Carew Eccles. From Here's what happened. This esteemed lecturer walks into class, uh-huh. pops a cassette into the tape deck, hits play, and out comes this sound. Well, uh, the sound was... Or... Wait a second. Let me get it right. Oh, here we go. And multiply this by 100. This, the professor announced, is the sound of a cat's brain while asleep. My God! 
Shank almost fell out of his seat. This is the brain during sleep? Making these really rapid, high-pitched, multiple sounds. That just blew us away. It wasn't just... Clearly, while that cat was curled up in its little kitty basket, its brain was very, very alive. Much more than anyone expected. And it's, this is still a weird revelation. Like, take my cat, Sammy. Sammy. All right, this is the sound of my cat, Sammy, sleeping. To think that while Sammy is sitting on my lap, totally out, there's a circus happening in his brain... What's going on in there? If you can imagine back in the 70s, this was a paradigm shift. People were suddenly like, oh my god, we're going to figure out anything about sleep. We have to ask the brain. And this is the room where we do all of our surgeries. And luckily, that's easily done. If you're willing to get your hands dirty. Okay, so the, the first step is you, you have to make an incision on top of the animal's head. When you've done that, we drill holes through the animal's skeleton. And, uh, and then you insert your electrode. Your then you've and, got uh, and that's simply it. a little window into their brain. You could see right there on the, on the screen, you could see the brain I, I, waves. Wait a slow. second, are you out of your mind? I mean, you just, did you just put a hole into a kitten's head? No, that, that wasn't my cat. Come on. So what was it we were doing there? What you just heard was uh, a mock surgery to an iguana, actually. And, and, <laughs> Even uh, an iguana? I mean, it's, it's not look, a nice look, thing look, to look, do. Look, 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 The animal was not harmed. Within 20 minutes of coming out of the anesthetic, the animal is moving around, it's eating, it's climbing, and it's, it's basking. It might seem like a rather invasive uh, procedure, but in actuality, it's, it's, it's not too bad at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that, by the way, is John Lescu. He's a graduate student at the uh, ecology department. At Indiana State University. Which is where we are. John gave our reporter, Kara Oler. Testing. Hmm. A tour of the lab. There are big boys here, and they all have nice hats. Showed her the iguanas. These guys are a little frightening to me. They're pretty huge. They're like four feet long, head to tail. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, they look like baby alligators. Pick that one up. And John measures their brain waves at night to see what happens in their head as they sleep. In a way, it's a continuation of that cat experiment that Dr. Schenk just told us about. Except what they're looking for is much more peculiar than could ever happen in a cat or in us. What, what, what is that? Let me put it to you as a puzzle, mm-hmm. okay? Forget iguanas. Dolphins, mm. right? Dolphins. Yep. How is it that a dolphin in the ocean, or even say the dolphins that you might find at Six Flags in New Jersey, right? they have two. Cody is our 10-year-old Atlantic bottlenose dolphin. His buddy Avalon is 12 years old. And that's our trainer, Megan Tutera of Mitra, is holding the mic. Anyhow, here's the puzzle. We asked Megan about this. How is it? that her two dolphins, Cody and Avalon, can successfully sleep given the inherent challenges of being a dolphin. I don't, I don't know. What do you mean are the challenges of a dolphin? Well, they have significant challenges, my friend. First, <laughs> they've got to breathe. Um, they're not, they're conscious breathers. They're not unconscious breathers. So they, they have to think about breathing. Making matters worse, dolphins are not fish. So they have to breathe air, which means they have to constantly, consciously come up to the surface to breathe air every few minutes. So you can imagine what would happen if they decided to go unconscious for a while. They would drown. Right. And yet they do manage to sleep. A lot. How, how long? Eight hours a day. Like really? us. Yeah, eight hours. But how? That's the puzzle. What um, happens is they do what we call logging. It's when they rest on the surface of the water. You know, when a log floats down a river, it just floats. Uh That's exactly what they look like. And they rest half their brain at a time. Half their brain is asleep? Half their brain is asleep at a time. That is nature's solution. To cut the dolphin brain in half. You mean literally? Literally in half. So that one half can snooze while the other half keeps the dolphin swimming and surfacing. Wow just enough to breathe. From the outside, you can't really tell what's happening. It just looks like the dolphin is sort of awake, but a little out of it. So it's almost like the state of when you're falling asleep, but if something happened, you'd wake right up. So they're in that state all the time. This sort of uh, can be characterized as groggy. That's Steve Lima. He runs one of the labs back in Indiana. They're sort of awake and they're sort of asleep, and it's just a way of, of staying awake enough. And again, it's easy to miss, but if you look inside that groggy dolphin's brain what the brainwaves are doing? It's exquisitely obvious. It's clear as day. A six-year-old can figure it out. One half of the brain has these beautiful slow waves, like a sine curve. And the other one's just... Just jagging all over the place. Oh, those were beautiful. 
Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, it's called unihemispheric sleep. That's what the guys at Indiana State are really interested in. Because, and here's the next surprise, it seems to go way beyond dolphins. Oh, yeah. yeah. Aquatic mammals like uh, whales, seals, and sea lions. John says that all the marine mammals that have been studied seem to do it, too. Recently, walruses, they're all found to engage in unihemispheric sleep as well. And now, the Indiana team, led by a... Okay. This guy. Uh, I'm Charles Amlaner, chair of the Department of Ecology and Organismal Biology. They have found this weird split-brain behavior in creatures of the air. Okay. Oh. Let, me, let me just back up a little bit and describe uh, the, this experiment. Charlie and his student had been at the park one day, and they noticed something. We observed that ducks... Ducks. ...sometimes will get together into groups. Like on a log. Four ducks will get together and snooze in a neat little line. And the birds that were sitting in the middle of that line tended to be sleeping with both eyes closed. The birds that were sitting on the outside of that row tended to look a little bit more wary. The inevitable question... What's going on here? ...led to a very simple experiment. We put four birds in a row... Four mallard ducks, this time in the lab, and they watched them sleep. The two birds in the center of this row slept with both eyes closed. The birds on the outer edges, both left and right, slept with one eye closed and one eye opened. One more time. Slept with one eye closed and one eye opened. It's just like in that song. Do you know that Metallica song? (laughs) I I missed it. It's a good one. But I knew they were all botanists. It's true. You know, no one knows this, but that song is really about adaptive sleeping behavior in ducks. The outer eye, the eye that was faced away from the group, the eye that was facing towards where potential predators might come from, that stayed open. At this point, Charlie had a pretty good idea of what was going on because he knew that inside bird brains, each eye is attached to the opposite hemisphere. The left eye is attached to the right hemisphere. The right eye is attached to the left hemisphere. So his team implanted some electrodes to measure what the duck brains were doing, and voila. Like the dolphins, the ducks, too, were sleeping one half of their brain at a time. The bird could simultaneously sleep and be awake. Not only that, here's the cool part. After a few hours... What happened was is that the birds that were on the outer edge then would rotate. Stand up, turn around. 180 degrees. And then sit back down. And the other eye would then get some sleep... And consequently, the opposite hemisphere would get some sleep. When we saw that, we said, oh, yeah, this is, (laughs) that's good. (laughs) Good, because right there in the docks was a perfect illustration of what these guys think it's all about. You've got to sleep for whatever reason. Right. But sleep is dangerous. Danger, danger, danger. That's the headline. For dolphins, the main danger is drowning. Danger, danger. You know? Yeah. For ducks. Getting eaten. Exactly. Danger. Danger. Ducks have Danger. to sleep. Danger. But how Danger. can they? Danger. When lurking in the darkness are foxes and wolves and a hundred other eaters of ducks. Do you like snakes? I don't know. Not really. I, I don't dislike snakes. He's a good man. He's a good man. In another nifty experiment, John took the resident snake, Monty. This is Monty. Hi. Big snake. He is what, about a four-foot-long python? Mm-hmm. And at night... You're so cute. Yeah. John brought Monty the python into the room where his iguanas sleep. And he terrifies them. Really? Well, I mean, Monty was in a cage, so he couldn't really hurt the iguanas. But as soon as that snake appeared, all the lizards popped one eye open. (laughs) I bet they did. And they trained that open eye right on Monty the snake. Put a big snake in the room and they'll watch it. With one eye. All night. That's Steve Lima again. They don't like these snakes, that's for sure. And they remove the snake from the room the next day, and, and they're still looking for it the next night or two. So they keep one eye, you know, trained on that door for a few more About days? two or three days. They, they go back to uh, regular sleep. So what does this all mean? Well, think about this. Okay, all the sea mammals, they do it. Right. Uh, Well, at least the ones that have been studied. All the flying creatures, they do it. The reptiles seem to do it, too. Who does that leave? You mean who's left not sleeping with half a brain on and the other half a brain off? Yeah. Um... Us! Really? We 
may be the strange ones. Well, it is sort of strange in that terrestrial mammals can't do it. Terrestrial mammals just for some reason have lost the ability to do this. Not all mammals, says John. The terrestrial mammals, the ones that, that live on land. Huh. And here's his theory. Sometime long ago, our scaly ancestor wandered up onto land and thought, I think I'll dig a hole. Yeah, I'm going to dig a hole. And the hole was dark. And it was safe. And for the first time in millions of years of evolution, that little creature closed both eyes. <sighs> and so we lost it. <laughs> totally speculative theory, of course. But the basic idea, though, is if you are protected and safe, you can afford to close both eyes, conk out completely. Huh. And that simple idea of safety, that explains, well, these guys think almost everything. Where you sleep, how you sleep, how long you sleep. It all boils down to two words. Predation risk. Predation risk. Predation risk. Which is really just a fancy way of saying. Generally speaking, just your risk of being killed. Your risk of being eaten. Now, what does this have to do with us? Here we are, top of the food chain, in our warm beds. Nice warm bed. Locked door. A locked door. Covers. Maybe a nice neighborhood. A good police force looking after you at nighttime. And you live in a country that has uh, a very secure living environment. You would think that this whole predation risk idea has nothing to do with us. Well, well, there's a few studies that have looked at, uh, say, sleep patterns where people are sleeping in novel environments. What's a novel environment? What does he mean? Well, like a hotel. Oh. That first night at a hotel, why is it no one could sleep well that first night at a hotel? On your first night of sleeping in a hotel room, you generally have less REM sleep and less deep slow-wave sleep relative to sleeping in your house. I, I suffer from that myself. I don't sleep well in hotel rooms, especially if it's just one night per place or something, I, my sleep is terrible. And there are some folk that actually hypothesize there are certain uh, predator uh, relays in the brain. Danger, 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 danger. And that these danger, circuits danger, remain active danger, at all danger, times. Danger, 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 Now what if that's true, that we all have buried deep in our reptile brain a sort of predator alert system? Perhaps in some of us, it's a little too sensitive. Okay, we're in the sleep lab at the Minnesota Regional Sleep Disorder Center, Mission Control, we call it. We're viewing the typical sleep terror episode. This little girl, who is uh, five years old, would engage in these sleep terror episodes every single night. That's Dr. Now. Carlos Shank, who we heard from before. We're in Minnesota now at the Hennepin County Sleep Center, here in the sleep lab where he works. We're standing in front of a grainy black and white video of a little girl in her PJs, screaming. So look at the time. Dr. Shank discovered an odd category of sleep disorders called parasomnias, which is why we came to talk to him. Para means around. Somnio means sleep. Around sleep. This might be the human analog to the ducks. People whose brains never quite shut off completely during sleep. Well, this guy is interesting. He has seizures. No, 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 he doesn't. Wait a second. He showed us tape after tape. We're viewing a man who we very affectionately call Santa Claus. Yeah. On the screen, large guys thrashes back and forth. His legs are moving. He's going back and forth with his side to his back. And then suddenly he starts to... Is this real? Yeah, this guy is in and out of sleep. He has no idea what he's doing. One of the interesting things... Dr. Schenck noticed when he first began to diagnose parasomnias in the early 80s is that while they were in that kind of liminal space around sleep, a huge percentage of the patients would have these visceral dreams of being attacked. The common theme is a menace is posed from nowhere, coming out of nowhere. It's an immediate threat that you, you just can't uh, ignore. Let's put it that way. You have to either fight it or run away from it. The, the dreams can be... Very violent. This is Martin Zabel, age 88. He's another of Dr. Schenck's patients. I remember someone coming up the stairway. In Martin's case, the attackers never had a face. Sometimes it was a bear. And I was going to fight with him. He'd yell at him, get out of here! That's Martin's wife, Gertrude. Scram! 
He was always trying to protect me. Yeah, I would have black and blue bruises on my arms and hands because I was hitting the headboard. Not infrequently, the man is dreaming in bed with his wife that he is fighting to defend her from an attacker when, in fact, he's beating her up. One night I was sleeping, and all of a sudden he's got his hands tightly around my throat. I'm petrified. Quit, Mart. You're dreaming. You're hurting me. She says, Martin, you're dreaming. Gertrude and Martin Zabel are still married, believe it or not, after 57 years, though she did force him to sell his guns. He has never been happy about that. Well, they were quite valuable. So you're suggesting then that all these people, and the iguanas, and the ducks, and the dolphins, mm-hmm. all have a portion of their brain which is weary in the night. That's what I'm hinting at. I don't want to go any stronger than hint at, but there seems to be... Uh, Something in us that's always watching out, always wary. Bottom line here, though, is that sleep for all creatures is a dangerous thing, and a few unfortunate people are still awake to that fact. That's right. Before we go to break, I just want to thank Ann Hepperman for her excellent reporting in Minnesota and also before her, Kara Oler, and to remind you to stay with us because we're going to turn our attention shortly from danger to deprivation. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. This is Nicole from Brooklyn. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more— People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. This is Radio Lab. You are Robert Krulwich. Robert Krulwich is my name. And you're... I'm Jed Abumrad. And today our topic on Radio Lab is sleep. Yeah. It is something that all of us do. We can't help but do it. It's, it's dangerous so to do. It's so good. And it's universal. Think about it. You know, sleep is dangerous. And if sleep could have been circumvented in some way, natural selection probably would have found a way to do it. That's Steve Lima again from Indiana State University. Because it would, it just, it would be such a great idea to not sleep. Don't I know it? <laughs> but there are times when you just can't sleep. Right? Maybe you're one of the 35 million Americans, I am, who has chronic insomnia. Yeah. You just can't sleep. You don't know why. It just doesn't happen. Or maybe you do it to yourself, and you pull all nighters for school, or you have to drive long distances. Or, and here's what we want to turn our attention to next: maybe it is done to you. Hmm. That's the case with producer Hannah Palin. She kept this audio diary of her own experiment with sleep deprivation. She has an 18-month-old son. It's 2.54 for the record. (laughs) 
Today was my first day back at work. We were discussing budgets. I just, I just, I couldn't even articulate what it was that I was seeing on the computer screen and try to communicate that to the curator that I work for. The words didn't come. Lie down, lie down on me. Instead of saying, well, Nicolette, I believe that that choice was made because, no, no, all that came out was like, um, honey buckets. I mean, nothing, nothing would come out. There's just no brain cells, really. Darn. We're almost ahead of my sleep there. So anyway, uh, that was my first day back at work. Dominic will not sleep. I don't know why. And I'm trying to get him to sleep. And it's kind of at my wit's end. Oh, God, this just sucks. Totally sucks. Here's the funny thing. Everybody has a theory. And I was talking to my sister-in-law tonight, and her theory is that he's not getting enough milk because milk has some agent in it that would help him sleep and he doesn't like milk it's true other people say oh if you just would exercise him if he just gets fresh air and exercise he'll sleep all night if you just let him cry he would sleep all night if you just would do whatever it is we're not doing he would sleep all night and there's this feeling like there's a feeling like I am doing it all wrong and that I'm a failure as a parent and I don't know how to do this. Come here, sweetie. Come, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Just hang out on me. So anyway, I needed to record just one thing really quickly and that is that yesterday and today I've been struck by this. <laughs> I've been struck by these waves of satisfaction and delight with being alive in this amazing landscape with, okay, beautiful <laughs> <laughs> with a funny kid, <laughs> these beautiful <laughs> mountains and, and water, and I don't know, maybe it's just getting a little more sleep in the last couple of days, but I just suddenly feel like, wow, I'm so lucky. Okay, I've got to take my kid to play now. Here we go. Do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. Okay, that whole I'm loving life. Yeah, that's all gone now. And it's pretty much because Dominic won't take a nap. Well, he came home from the beach, which I thought would wear him out. Then we sat down and read some stories, which for some reason... And I realized that an element to the sleep deprivation and an element to this whole thing is that I get angry from having my own needs subverted to the needs of this little tiny person, which when you're not sleep deprived is not a big deal. That's tired. I tired. I'm tired. I said. I don't want to wish a minute of Dominic's childhood away because it's so precious to me. But damn, <laughs> I am looking forward to uh, that moment when um, I'm able to say, honey, time to go to sleep. And he does it. Tired. No, not tired. Close your eyes, Buck. Close your eyes. There's my personal take on what it's like to be sleepy. And to crave sleep as much as you crave water or breath. I crave it. Thanks to Hannah Palin. And her son Dominic and her husband Steve. <laughs> I know. Poor Hannah. But there is a science question lurking in the background, which is when, you know, when Hannah was so tired, 
Why does she feel that way? You know, what? What? But, what? Because she's she hasn't been sleeping. Well, yeah, but, but what makes her... You know, what is the essence of tiredness? Lack of sleep. Hello. <laughs> no, I, chemically, I'm asking you. Uh, chemically, I'm right. What is happening to her? <laughs> if you were way down in her cells, could you see something tired-like going on? That's what That's I That's a good question, good. actually. I'm glad you think so, because I know a guy who has a theory about this. Did you see Tiger yesterday? Huh? Tiger, he's, he's just, he's unbelievable. He's the best running of anybody. I mean, the guy is unbelievable. This yeah. is Dr. Alan Pack, and in addition to being a rabid sure. golf fan, he's also a rabid, can you be a rabid biologist? <laughs> sure. At the University of Pennsylvania, he's been looking at sleep down at the cellular level. And one thing that he's found over and over and over. And that's been shown in mouse, it's been shown in rat, it's been shown in fruit fly. Is that inside certain cells in all those different animals, when they're sleep deprived. Eventually what happens is... Pre- you don't get proteins properly folded. Excuse me? <laughs> proteins properly folded? Mm-hmm. A phenomenon called the unfolded protein response. What on earth does that mean? Well, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you're asking why do you need proteins to properly fold? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, you're made of proteins. Proteins are the essence of you. So if your proteins are misshapen, if they're not folded properly... If you don't fold the proteins properly, they don't have the right three-dimensional structure, and as a result, they start accumulating inside the cell, and then these different unfolded proteins can aggregate together and form clumps. Clumps. Inside the cell and essentially clog it up, and, and it's really quite toxic to cells. Clumpiness equals tiredness, it would be his formula. Remember when uh, Hannah was so exhausted? Yeah. Oh, God, this just sucks. Well, because she hasn't slept much, totally inside her cells, lots of these valuable little proteins have not folded properly. That, he thinks, is the consequence of not having enough sleep. So maybe what's going on is the cells can't do their business quite as well, and things start to break down. And that adds up across the whole of your body to a feeling of... <sighs> but when she gets to sleep, remember when she's so happy? Yeah. I suddenly feel like, wow. Because of the sleep... I'm so lucky. A group of cleaner-uppers have gone through her cells, removed the toxic and misshapen proteins so that... Here we go. In effect, sleep is the best housemaid you've ever had in the hotel of you. And this idea, the, the idea of sleep as a cleaner-upper might even explain one of the most basic things about us as humans. How we learn. That's the notion of Dr. Giulio Tononi. Testing, 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 Uh, My producer, Ellen Horn, and I went to visit him at his offices in Madison, Wisconsin. What are we expecting? What does he look like? Um, We don't know what he looks like. A football player. A football player. But like a quarterbacker, tight end, not like a linebacker. Not like a linebacker. So big, but not overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. How do you even know that? Oh, website. See, but I was totally wrong. Sometimes. <laughs> now, to be Hello. fair, he is a very attractive guy. He has sandy blonde hair and glasses. So he's actually more the sensitive guy intellectual than a linebacker. Yes. Introduce yourself. I'm Giulio Tononi. I am a professor of psychiatry here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But when it comes and to the subject of sleep, which is his specialty, he takes sleep very seriously. What got you in sleep? Sleep is the annihilation of consciousness. So it's a terrible time in which everything disappears. The universe and yourself with it. I think if people didn't sleep and didn't have the unconsciousness of sleep, they possibly wouldn't even realize that consciousness is an enormous gift. So being awake then is wonderful, but it's what happens when you're asleep, he says. That's what allows you to make very important connections in your life. And he noticed this first when he was connecting with, uh, I believe it was a guitar. He was playing music. I used to play, for instance, I played classical guitar. I'm sure many people who play musical instruments know that. You may train and train and train on a piece during the day, and you get better for sure. But you're never perfect. And then you sleep over it. The next day, you wake up, you play it again, and now it's smooth and, you know, it flows beautifully. That happened to you? It happened to me. It happens to lots of people. That happened to me all the time. 
I discovered that sometimes if I worked on a piece and put it away and went to bed and got some rust, I had it better learned than if I stayed up all night cramming. Yeah. Definitely. There's one story, and I haven't thought about this for a long time, but... Well, first of all, Rob and I like play in a band together. The band is called the Sisterhood of Convoluted Thinkers. And we switch instruments like a lot. She's usually the bass player. I was going to play drums. So she had to learn how to play drums. So we rented a cabin. We went somewhere to rehearse. And um, at night, she was really just kind of practicing and practicing and trying to get this, this rhythm. This one particular beat, like I worked on it like a lot. I just keep going and going. I remember and I... playing that one thing again and again yeah. and again. Stop! And I finally just gave up and went to sleep. And the next morning, I got up and went like straight to the kit, and I just played it like immediately. The butt hit the stool, and she was going. She could just do it. I thought it was magic. You could just learn stuff in your sleep. <laughs> so wait, so in the middle of the night, somehow the things that your fingers did repeatedly. And the notes that you were using to propel your fingers, all those things somehow got into, got more, got better learned. So you learned overnight or you, I mean, what does that have to do with, is, uh, you remember better in the morning? Well, or? what happens is that the next day you're, you're a bit better off. What happens during the night to make you better off, this is up for contention. Tononi's contention is that sleep helps you remember by forgetting. Uh, I don't. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, let me explain to you what he's what he's saying. He says there's a limited amount of space in your brain. The real estate in the brain is pretty limited. Limited amount. That makes sense. And it's a small little guy up there. Yep. And yet, every experience you have during the day is going to take away some space. Uses up a little of what you got. When you are awake, inevitably, you learn whether you want it or not. You are going around talking to me, having breakfast. I'll just have a medium coffee. And going to work. Then yakking on the phone with, the, you know, with your friends, Hello. talking to your mom, it's very different from some of the friends, then going home, taking a bath, I take a bath. Yeah, I get it, I get it. <laughs> Everything you do during the day, every thought you think, no matter how small, it all causes your brain to form new connections. This conversation, as we're having it, is reshaping my brain. Yeah. The little pathways are forming that weren't there before I sat down. Exactly. Whether we recognize it or not, Lots of things are going to change your brain by the end of a waking day. So if in the middle of the afternoon you sit down with your guitar and you practice the guitar intently, those two hours you're also making connections. And because you're concentrating, maybe you're making more connections than usual. These are guitar connections. And all those synaptic connections made during the day, one uh, I'll just have a medium upon the other, upon the other... By the time you're ready for sleep at the end of the day, up in your head, it's a giant, unruly mess. And that is where we think sleep kicks in. Well, I'm going to guess here, but I think you think that sleep is a garbage detail that comes in and says, okay, you're done, you're done, you're done. It's actually even simpler than that. According to Tononi, there's not really a janitor who comes in and decides, okay, you have to leave, you get to stay. Nothing like that. Instead, he says what happens... We think that during sleep, waves... waves of electrical activity, kind of like a late evening bath, wash over your head. They start at the back of your head, and they move to the front. These waves are called slow oscillations. And over the course of the night... 1,000 times a night... Those waves wash through all the experiences of your day, all the little synaptic connections that you made all day long, and every one of those connections... All of them. ...gets just a little bit softer. They get weaker. Progressively, gracefully, they get weaker. Even, he says, the things you want to hold on to, like the guitar. Wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. You were the one who said you learned how to play the instrument in the afternoon, you went to sleep, and you play the instrument better in the morning. Yeah. So Why would you wake up the next morning playing better? You should play more weekly, with less confidence, and less memory. Because after all, you've just given the whole place a bath. It's all relative, sir. <laughs> what he means by relative is this. That, that mess of new connections in your head, yeah. some of those connections are softer. Some of those connections were louder. The random things you ordered for lunch, they're softer. Yeah, I'll have a turkey okay. But the guitar, because you spent so much time thinking about guitar technique, you spent so much energy on it, that's louder. So we're just measuring connections here. Now imagine that sleep is a big volume knob. So listen to what happens when you lower the volume on the whole day. Lower and lower. 
lower and lower. Now, you hear how the softer stuff just falls away? You can't hear it anymore? Yeah. But the guitar, while well, it's getting softer too, because it was so loud to begin with, now it stands out a bit more clearly, no? Yeah. The signal, the signals that have survived reasonably well, are heard better because the background has become more silent. And so your ability you play to play the guitar better the next morning is not because you've learned skills overnight that you didn't have before. It's because all the other stuff taken up your brain has gone down in volume and you're left with, relatively speaking, a better guitar fingering technique. You put your finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Chinoni feels that sleep is a little bit like wind and rain, like the process of erosion. At the end of the day, or rather at the beginning of the morning, the things left standing are the things you need to know. We should, uh, we should go to break. Okay, so coming up next, for those of us who can get to sleep, next, our chance to dream. This is Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumran. And I'm Robert Crowley. We'll continue in a moment. This is Cheryl Ng calling from San Francisco. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time, you like to relax every now and then, you like to feel totally chill, but your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. This is Radiolab. I'm Jad. And I'm Robert. And today's program is about... Sleep. As in the kind of sleep where you perchance to dream. Exactly. Did you know that story about the... Um, the benzene molecule? No. Speaking of dreams. No. Well, oh, here. The okay. benzene molecule? 1865. German chemist is trying to figure out the shape of this molecule, benzene. He knows it has a certain amount of one kind of atom and a certain amount of another, but he can't figure out how they all link up. Right. And he's tortured by this problem. Goes to sleep. Yeah. Has a dream of a snake biting its tail. Wakes up, bolts right up, and says, it's a ring. It's a ring. Do you believe that? I, I want to. Well, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hate it when people tell me their dreams. Hate it. I want to stab my eye with a fork, frankly, <laughs> when people tell me their dreams. I don't know why. Well, I'm never going to tell you about my dreams again. All right, good. <laughs> but you know, you're not alone because for a long time, scientists have, have avoided studying dreams because they, they think they're so random and meaningless and unstudiable. Right. But we did meet a guy. I'm Bob Stickgold, S-T-I-C-K-G-O-L-D. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Who found an interesting way to ask the question, Why do we dream? Simple question, very hard answer. Robert Stickgold was one of the first modern scientists to take dreams seriously. And for him, it be, actually began kind of by accident. I had been up in Vermont with my family. We had gone and climbed Camel's Hump, one of the higher, easy-to-climb mountains in Vermont. We'd gone at 8 in the morning. We were back at 2 in the afternoon. And for that whole day, he'd been up climbing on the rocks, gripping them with his hands, really climbing. Later that night... I lie down, I close my eyes. I can feel the rocks under my hands. 
and I sort of startle up and I say, whoa, that's really bizarre. It wasn't like I was thinking about it. I was there. I could feel the rock. I'd been off the mountain for eight hours. Nothing like that had happened. I lie down in bed for three minutes starting to go to sleep and boom, it's there. And I tried again and I fell asleep. Two hours later, I wake up, have to go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom, I come back and I say, that was way cool, I have to try that again. And I cannot get it back. What happened in those two hours to those memories that they won't intrude anymore? And then I started talking to friends and they said, oh, try, try canoeing. Or someone else says, try, huh, try whitewater rafting if you want to get that. And someone else says, oh, hello, take organic chemistry. <laughs> and you go to bed at night, and all you see are these bloody molecules rotating in front of your eyes. Those daytime activities are affecting your dreams. And that got him thinking. What exactly is the connection between what you do during the day and what you dream at night? What are the rules of that? He figured, all right, well, this replay is kind of interesting. Maybe I'll test it. But how? If I get some subjects together, what could I have them do during the day that would reliably end up in their dreams? Well, you can't have them all go for a hike. Mm -mm. And I'm probably not going to get permission to take them whitewater rafting. Too expensive. So what could he do? Sort of sat fallow for a year. And I was moaning to some of my students about how I can't think of how to do this. And someone says, Tetris. And somebody else says, absolutely. And I'm saying, what, what? They say, well, don't you play Tetris? And I say, yes. Well, when you start playing Tetris, turns out when you start playing Tetris, when you go to bed at night, you lie down in bed, and you see Tetris pieces falling down in front sure. of your eyes. Sure? Oh, yeah. You knew that? Absolutely. Your eyeballs. You guys both know that? Oh, yeah. I got a cover of a science magazine for the first published paper on dreaming in 40 years because I discovered that and everybody already knew it. <laughs> it was that simple. He got a bunch of people, put them in a room, had them play Tetris. Later that night they woke up and 60% of them were dreaming of Tetris. 60%. How do you know that? I mean, just from their they, reports? They report that as they're falling asleep, we're monitoring them electrophysiologically and as they start to drift off to sleep please report now this tetris observation was a pretty good start in terms of getting at that question why do we dream why do we dream how does it work what if as a next step instead of having the people report their own dreams waking them up and doing that whole thing what if instead you could cut the person out of the equation entirely and go right to the source to the dream directly. Matt Wilson, uh, I'm a researcher here at MIT, and I'm a neuroscientist studying learning and memory. That's what uh, Matt Wilson does. He takes us to the dream lab. So when we first come in, what we see is this bank of monitors. 13 monitors all in a row. Each monitor displaying ongoing activity in the brain. with Little panels, each panel uh, showing these... It's like the Kennedy Space uh, Center, really. All the monitors have data just flashing all over them. Graphs and squiggly lines and numbers. It's not immediately clear where all this information is coming from. But if you peek around the back, you'll see that all the computer wires go to one box, which then connects to a cable, which then goes up to the ceiling, over to a wall, and down into the head, into the head of one tiny rat. Here he is. He's who's just kind of hanging out in his own little basket. See him just resting. Is that the little guy himself? Yeah, him. He looks pretty normal, except for this cable coming out of his skull. And the cable is basically a microphone, or a bunch of them, which Matt uses to eavesdrop on the brain cells inside the rat's head as they chit-chat. And this is what that sounds like. You can hear this kind of snap, crackle, pop sound. These are individual cells that are firing. Like, uh... Right there, right like one there, of those. That kind of whooshing sound. Uh-huh. I can tell this animal's sitting, resting quietly. Amazingly, he says this while he has his back to the animal. He is so fluent with the Morse code language of the rat's brain cells, he doesn't even have to actually look at the animal to know what it's doing. He can just instantly decode all of that snapping. Mm. Kind of like that guy in the Matrix, the bald guy. I, I don't even see the code. 
All I see is blonde, brunette, redhead. Just by listening, Matt knows when the animal is sitting, he knows when it is sleeping, he knows when it's running around in a maze, even can tell which direction it's running. It just happened that as we were studying these patterns while the animal ran around, after the experiments, the animals would, they would get tired, they would go to sleep. I would be there in the room, but I would continue to listen to the activity. Notice how it's gotten silent? Yeah. And I began to notice that when the animals were asleep, the brain cells weren't just firing randomly. In fact, when animals would go into REM sleep, so now he is in fact going into REM right now, the pattern of activity that you could hear, notice that it's not these whooshes anymore, sounded very much like the pattern that the animal had just been running through. In fact, if you weren't watching the animal, you would think, oh, the animal has gotten up and is running around again, but then you turn and you look and you see the animal is asleep. He checked the data, and it wasn't simply that the rat was running around in its mind while its body was asleep. It seemed to be running a specific route. The same route, in fact, that it had run earlier in the day. Same sequence, same order, same everything? Yes. It was rerunning its maze, step for step. So then he asked the next question. Are they seeing the things that they saw while they were awake? We can actually look into these questions as a rat. And? So the answer is is we see evidence of replay in basically all of the parts of the brain that we have looked in. They see the maze that they ran through? The very same maze? Yes, they so see the maze. So that is dreaming in a sense. Well, they are... how do we define dreaming? So Sounds like dreaming to me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, but the question remains, why would the rat or any creature do this? And so Matt came up with a simple next experiment. He decided to give the rat two mazes. What would that do to its dreams of the night, or whatever you want to call them? If they run on maze number one, and then on maze number two, we see them running maze one and maze two together in a way that they did not experience when they were awake. So it's like a remix, uh, a new pattern that includes part of maze one and part of maze two. It turns out that when the rat had more than one maze in its memory, it began to invent completely new mazes. This gives us the, the, the thought that sleep is this unique opportunity to basically run through events, to put them together in ways that may not have occurred while the animals were awake. And that's what learning really is. Learning is about synthesis, about taking things that were apparently unrelated and figuring out the connection, that is, figuring out the rules, the hidden rules, the undiscovered rules that will allow us to create something new. I think dreaming is a time when we try out possibilities that in waking we might not feel were worth trying. And when it really works, it, it, it can be profoundly important. If Robert Stickgold is right, then how does this uh, solving the problem thing, how does it work? How does the brain decide what to put into a dream and what to leave out of a dream? One of the interesting things about dreams is that people don't have dreams where they're word processing, where they're surfing the net. These things that they spend huge amounts of their day doing don't get into their dreams. But somehow Tetris gets in there every time. Every time. And why would that be? Uh, Well, he has a hunch. Which he's actually exploring with a completely different video game. We've moved to a game called Alpine Racer, which we bought out of an arcade. Which he showed us. This way. Took us down the hall to to the game room. Here we are. And there in the corner it stood. Mockingly. Oh, wow, it's a full body game. Please step up. I stepped up to the game. Wait, it's trying to lock itself. Got on the platform. It's still warming up. And then I set off down a virtual mountain. Right, I'm going down the hill. I'm also a girl. I'm also avoiding the skis. Oh, I'm going to take a nice little turn there. Be careful of the little wall. Straight down ahead, and down we go. <laughs> oh, no, no, that tree. Wait, wait, uh, down. Uh. Uh-huh! We're now going to go through the tunnel. This is a... Ow! Oh, that hurt. <laughs> As you can hear, this game was really uh, stressful, I would, yes. which is by design. Robert Stickle has the theory that as you go through your day, your brain is constantly keeping track of emotions. That's the thing, emotional content. Like when you run into a virtual tree, for example. <laughs> your brain is going to flag that stuff. It's going to flag that it's important. It says, oh, I need to remember this so I can work on it later. I'm going to put a sticky on this one. So if it puts a sticky on everything that's hard during the day, then all the brain has to do when it's creating a dream is go and grab stickies. Oh, and then I died. But I died nice. <laughs> Just for the record, you got further than Jad on your first try. Wow. 
wow. It's like, and it's over. <laughs> you know? Could you say that again? Well, so you have people play Alpine Racer for 45-minute bursts throughout the day. What happens next? You wake you, them up? You monitor their brain activity, and just as they're falling asleep, within the first two minutes after they fall asleep, we'll wake them up. Please report now. There's a microphone right next to them on their bed, and they just report what was going through their minds. I was just thinking about skiing. 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 And we get, on the first night, up to 40% of all the reports being about skiing. And the game that I've been playing. Alpine Ski Racer again. 40%. Almost half of them. And that's right up there what I would expect to see after trauma, where something has been labeled so intensely that the brain says, okay, it's obvious what's on the agenda for tonight. Stickgold thinks he's seeing the outline of the dream-making process here. It starts really simply at the very beginning of sleep, like right after you fall asleep, Mm -hmm. with the replay. This, he suspects, is just the brain emptying out its stickies. Things that really intrigued me during the day, that, that, that I felt during the day. Yeah, but... What happens if we let the people go to sleep, sleep two hours like I did in that very first time after climbing the mountain, wake them up, After two hours of sleep... Because remember, he couldn't get back the memory of the rocks after he'd spent two hours of sleep. That's right. And what he's found is that if you fast-forward two hours into the dream... get almost no reports of skiing at all. The replay seems to dissolve into a remix. We start getting reports like... Oh, I dreamt I was sliding down a hill. Like I'm going downhill. Just rolling down a hill. Downward motion. I was thinking about... I was about to say a downhill banana. I was thinking about skateboarding. I was thinking about thinking about a bunch of bananas. Doing yoga on a ski slope. Someone else had a dream that they were rushing through a forest with their body incredibly stiff and their legs not moving at all as if they were on a conveyor belt. It's like as the dream goes on, the brain is starting to free associate. What do I have in my past that has anything to do with mountains anything to do with crashing or skiing, anything at all that can help me. What do I have in all my memories, in my case from the last 60 years, that fits associatively, thematically? And the result? Well, it might seem random, it is. But every so often, he says, you come up with the right answer. So now we get to your dreams of people discovering the structure of benzene. Kukul was his name. Um, Kekul, actually, was his name. <laughs> August Kekul. He was the German guy I talked about earlier who had a dream of a snake eating its tail and realized from that dream that the shape of the benzene molecule is a ring. I don't know if that dream is true, but maybe that is, in fact, the point of dreaming. It's this time when you shut off the outside, turn inside, take the problems that you've got, and start to really work on them, pull them apart, make connections that you wouldn't normally make during the day. Uh, However, have you ever wondered why it would be necessary when solving problems like this to dream so vividly? Mm. Are you at all puzzled by the super-duper technicolor, extraordinarily cinematic quality of some of these things? Because if it were just an everyday brain function to sort of make sense of the world and allow you to make new connections, you really wouldn't need quite the the movie quality. So when we talk about dreams... What seems to come into dreams are memories, concepts, relationships, associations that have a strong emotional flavor. And I'm guessing from the data, need a full-blown orchestration to be properly processed. And it is. It's technicolor. The colors are, are overwhelming almost. So if I hear you right, what you're saying to Robert's question about why are the dreams so uh, vivid is that I don't know, but maybe the vividness helps. That whole long answer is what a Harvard professor says instead of saying, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we should wrap up. If you want any more information on anything that you heard this hour, visit our website, radiolab.org. There'll be more information about sleep on there, won't there? Yes, there will be more information on sleep. And you can sign up for our podcast, radiolab.org. Also, while you're at it, send us an email, radiolab at wnyc.org is the address. Remember also that sleep spelled backwards is peels, which is what you do to an orange, grapefruit, and to a pear. <laughs> I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Kolich. We'll see you later. First message. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad. Ellen Horn. 
senior producer, Lulu Miller, assistant producer, production executive, Dean Capello. Next message. Additional reporting by producers Ed Hepperman and Kara Oler. Production support by Sarah Pellegrini, Scott Goldberg, Alaska Keevil, Sam Lavander, Avir Mitra, Ryan Scammell, and Jacob Weinberg. Thanks to the musicians we interviewed, Brad Cresswell, Janine Durfee, Rob Christensen, George Preston, and Karen Havlick. And special thanks to me, Hannah Palin. You're welcome. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.